Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. I'm your host, Mary Swander. The Buggy Land Podcast is about the Amish, sustainability, and the wider rural environment. With the help of a grant from the Cinepid Fund, we are taking you to a much wider rural environment this week. We're speaking with Aparajita Sengupta, a Fulbright scholar currently at the University of Kentucky, who is writing a book on women farmers. She and her husband are certified in permaculture, a system of land management and design that aims to create a balanced ecosystem. Together, they have regenerated a two-acre farm near Calcutta, India. Listen to my interview with Aparajita while she details all that she has done here and abroad. Welcome, Aparajita. Thank you so much, Mary. It's so lovely to be talking to you finally, uh, since we have talked back and forth a little bit. Um, so, so very excited and uh, looking forward um, to talking with you. Oh, that's great. So you presently are in uh, on a Fulbright at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, and uh, you've had a history with the University of Kentucky. Can you tell me a little bit about your history there and then the Fulbright that you're currently on? Sure. Uh, so I came to the United States in 2004 as a graduate student um, at to uh, an English department. And um, I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma for a while, uh, met my future husband and um, transferred to the University of Kentucky. Um, and then eventually graduated from the English department there in 2010. Um, so my connection with uh, Lexington, Kentucky um, is on various levels. Um, I got my degree here. I uh, got married here in this town. Um, my daughter was born here. So um, even though I wanted to go back to India and be close to family once I uh, had finished my degree. Um, I have, you know, um, I grew roots in this place. Uh, and I had no idea that after so many years, 10 years, actually, that I would be back here uh, again uh, on a Fulbright. Um, so uh, we lived, uh, you know, a normal life in Kentucky. My husband was a software developer. I was uh, working on my PhD. Um, but uh, there were certain ways in which Lexington, Kentucky was changing at this time. Um, and we sort of caught the fever. 
uh, of uh, sustainability, farming, local food, all of that uh, gradually got to us. And by the time we left, we knew that we were um, going to do something um, about the food system, uh, especially about the food that we ate. Um, so after uh, we went back to India, I, I taught uh, in a college for a while. My husband worked his job. Uh, and then things started changing. Uh, and then gradually through various, um, you know, steps, uh, we uh, reached a point where we bought land and settled on it and became full-time farmers ourselves. We quit our jobs and we uh, started living in this village in India, West Bengal. And we've been living on this farm for eight years now. And we grow all our food, including our grains on that uh, piece of land. It's It's a tiny farm it's two acres only but we managed to grow almost everything that we eat uh over there um and then um uh a few years ago one of my uh professors from um the university of kentucky um she's she's from the same um indian town um city kolkata that i am from and she visited me um and she gave me the idea that i could um apply for a fulbright it really wouldn't have occurred to me. Um, and I thought, well, why not? I mean, we've spent so much time uh, working on the farm and learning on the job. Um, and uh, usually on a farm, there's not much time uh, to sit down and write. Uh, so this was like a fantastic opportunity for me to come back here um, and to sort of uh, speak with uh, women who are farming here. Um, um, and I, I am here to write a book on women who farm and my emphasis is on, um, uh, you know, women who are farming um, and are being able to make a living off of a farm um, or have um, attached innovative business models to their farms so that they their living uh, comes from that farm. So that's why I'm here. Very excited to be, be here and very, very grateful to Fulbright for offering me this opportunity, um, you know, even after 10 years of being outside of the academia, to come back here and to work on this book and meet all these fantastic people, including you. Uh, yeah, right, right. Well, that's fantastic. So are, are you once again stationed in the English department there? Or no, you're... No, I'm not. I, I am now stationed in the College of Agriculture uh, in the Department of Community uh, Leadership and Development. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I have the, the benefit uh, from them of being introduced to farmers, uh, different farming, uh, you know, uh, operations, different um, projects related to uh, sustainable and local food systems. Um, so um, very, very happy about that. That's fantastic. So tell me a little bit more about your book. Like what are some of the people that you're including in it? What are some of the contexts that you've made in um, the University of Kentucky? It sounds like you're surrounded by supportive people there. And who are these women? Who are, are you profiling the women or interviewing them? Or how is it developing in your book? 
Well, both, you know, in my experience and uh, according to the uh, requirements of Fulbright, uh, it is best that I, I produce something that is relevant in both the United States and my home country. Um, and it so happened that I spent some time in the United States, became all my influence came from here. And then I went back to India and my work happened over there. So this sort of, you know, gives me the opportunity to position myself, um, it, you know, it, it, at a place where I, I can speak with and share the experiences of women from both these locations. Um, and I, I find it interesting that we have so much in common. So what I'm doing in my book is, first of all, um, I'm, I'm speaking with women, I'm interviewing them. And um, there are well, women farmers from India who are included in my book as well. Um, as well as, you know, women who are working in the United States. Um, and the idea is to sort of talk about their collective experiences, um, the stories they tell, um, and their similarities more than anything else. I mean, um, when, uh, you know, I was coming here, uh, I was asked at the at the visa counter when I applied for my visa, um, uh, you know, I, I was asked what, uh, you know, what, what the common points were between women who farm in the United States and women who farm in India, uh, especially there was a question about how much land women own. Um, and uh, there is there is no similarity in that, perhaps, in how much land people own, uh, you know, when we try to quantify things like that. But when it comes to experience, I think we are all uh, focused on similar things. We are focused, A, on making a living. Uh, we are focused on trying to make it off of small farms. Uh, we are wanting, we are all wanting to have a good stable access to the market. Uh, we are all uh, having to educate our buyers as we go along. Um, we are having to form uh, networks of women uh, to support each other, to you know, create alternative uh, spaces where women can be together and support each other and find solutions for you know, the, the collective problems. So I think there's a lot in common when it comes to women farming, um, especially when it, when we talk about local sustainable, small models of agriculture, um, that really, uh, you know, uh, places us, uh, in, 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 in the zone where there's, there's a lot, uh, to be shared and, um, there's, there are a lot of common factors, um, so that is what I'm going to focus on uh, in my book, um, you know, the, the things that make us the same, really. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So with small farms, and I'm thinking beginning farmers, it sounds like you were beginning farmers eight years yeah. ago. What are some of the challenges uh, that you know exists both here in the, and in India? Are, the, are they similar to or are they different or how are the, how is that situation? Well, let me talk about the similarities first. I think that, uh, you know, the, the, in, in terms of a market, if, you know, uh, women are trying to produce, uh, certain things and take them to a market, uh, that is a problem that is common to both women here and in India, uh, uh as to, you know, the, the whole system is designed for, uh, mass production. It is designed for the large farmer, 
um, it is designed also primarily with men in mind. Uh, so it it is interesting to see that unless uh, you know we can establish alternative modes of doing business. Um, so, for example, when I first came here, um, and you know, I I got interested in the um, system of fruit production here, the local sustainable systems that were there, I was very drawn to the community-supported agriculture farm uh, because that is an innovative way in which buyers and I, I I do not use the word consumers intentionally because consumption to me is eating through things. Uh, so I, I like to say buyers. So buyers and producers can come uh, in close contact with each other. Um, the, the problem of, uh, you know, middlemen has been something that is widely talked about in India, uh, where the, 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 the profits um, for farmers are, um, they, they, they considerably shrink uh, because, um, you know, the, the produce will change hands so many times before it gets to the buyer. So here's here was a model which, you know, I could immediately, I mean, I was very attracted to it. And uh, in fact, our first farming operation was a CSA. And this was before we bought land. Um, I had leased land near Kolkata. Um, you know, this was land that somebody I knew owned, and he offered it to me. So I, I had set up a CSA farm uh, over there. With it was tiny. Uh, once again, uh, thirty families um, that I would grow vegetables and deliver uh, those vegetables to them from that farm. So I think you know, innovative models like the CSA um, are are important. They're vital uh, to the existence of small farmers uh, who are wanting access to the market. Farmers markets um, are equally important, right? So, and uh, in India, the situation is slightly different because um, we do have lots of farmers markets, which on the surface, they will look like farmers markets, but none of the people who are selling the produce there, these are large open markets filled with fresh produce, but at the same time, the people who are selling that produce did not produce um, you know, the vegetables themselves or the fruits themselves, right? They bought it from somebody else. And by the time it gets to the city, it would have changed hands maybe three or four times, um, thereby limiting the profits that reach the farmer, right? So when we talk about farmer's markets in India, we have to explain to people that we are talking about farmer's markets, meaning the farmers themselves can come out once or twice a week or whatever suits them and sell their own produce, thereby eliminating the need of any other people, uh, you know, to come between the farmer and the buyer. Uh, so these kinds of things are, are um, I, I think that finding those alternative models are really important for women in um, India and the United States, uh, finding ways in which they could reach the buyer directly, thereby bypassing the system, which otherwise does not benefit them in any way or was not designed for them. That's um, totally true. Can you explain a little bit about how a CSA works as opposed to a farmer's market? Yes. So, uh, and um, I, I uh, recently came to know um, that, uh, you know, Black communities were the first ones to have effectively utilized um, the community-supported agriculture farm model here in the United States, um, once again, uh, to deal with a lot of uh, 
problems uh, regarding getting fresh local produce to to the buyers, right? So, um, and when I saw this model in the uh, United States, I became a member of a CSA here in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and uh, so we were very impressed to see that, first of all, um, the buyer uh, would always know the farmer and there was a direct relationship between them. Um, when I set up the CSA, um, what we would do is we would grow seasonal uh, vegetables, uh, mostly from native seeds, uh, and then we would divide that up into uh, equal shares and um, take them to our buyers. Uh, Kolkata is a huge city, and um, you know we were not very far away from from the city. But at the same time, it was difficult for people to travel to the farm, and they could come anytime. But for their regular shares, they depended on me to take the shares to their doorstep. So that's what I did. I you know divided up um, the shares um, on harvest day, and once a week I would go uh, to their houses and give them. Um, their shares, uh, and they would pay me a monthly fixed share, uh, you know, at the beginning of the month, um, and that would pay for for their entire month. So instead of doing like because our seasons are longer, instead of doing like the six months, um, you know, um, down payment that people do here, a lump uh, sum payment uh, for CSAs in India, the monthly uh, payments work better for us. Uh, so that that was the model that we followed, and it worked great um, because first of all, you know, you're um, both the buyer and and, and the producer, um, they're not exposed to the ravages of the market so much, right? In India, sometimes the price of um, something will, you know, it will just shoot through the roof. Uh, you know, onions that are usually 20 rupees a kilo will go up to 120 rupees a kilo. Um, and for some flaw in distribution or something, uh, usually also because of overproduction. Um, and then, you know, uh, there's, you know, the, 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 the supply chain dwindles and then people don't have, uh, they, they cannot buy it. Um, and it becomes very expensive. For a CSA, it didn't matter how much a certain vegetable was selling for in the market because people were paying a fixed share um, for, you know, for, for their basket. So um, it, it never mattered if something became more or less expensive. Um, also, certification is expensive in India uh, and having this direct link between buyers and producers uh, often means that, um, you know, you know me, I know you, you can come down to the farm, you can take a look around, uh, you can participate in the activities of the farm, you can volunteer if you want, and you know what is going on. So you are not an outsider to this mode of production. Um, and thereby, you are protected uh, from, uh, you know, chemical usage or any unethical practice, because you are part of you know what is going on here, um, and that that also I felt was a very important uh, aspect of the CSA. Uh, it creates family, I think, in many ways. Yeah, no, with CSAs you get your monthly or weekly uh, bag of vegetables, but 
it's what's in season. I think that's what's hardest for Americans to adjust to, you know, like they want to eat strawberries in December. And it's, it's true for everybody, you know, and global markets have spoiled us in that way um, that like tomatoes would not grow in our, um, our area because, you know, we are a hot, wet, tropical climate. Uh, tomatoes grow only in the wintertime, but Indian curries are now, you know, the, it, the tomato is the most important ingredient of, for that. And people are so used to putting tomatoes in curries that do, they do not realize that our season would not allow for its growth, uh, you know, like throughout the year. So I had to uh, I had to have these conversations with people explaining to them that even though you get tomatoes in the market throughout the year, they will not grow in this CSA. You know, you, it, it's just for a few months. There will be a bounty and you can can or pickle or sun dry and I can help you do it. Uh, but there's no way that you're going to get tomatoes, you know, around the year. Do you provide recipes too for what's in season? I know that some CSAs do that. That's really nice. It's like, oh, I, now I know what to do with all this kale, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, we, we did uh, recipes and I, I would also do like, um, uh, um, I did process some of these things so that and made them available um, to, to the members, um, you know, sometimes. Uh, for some extra price, there would be pickled tomatoes or sun-dried tomatoes um, that they could buy and keep um, to use for the rest of the year. Uh, we don't have a CSA anymore. This this uh, CSA that I was talking about, uh, we ran it for a little over a year, um, and then we you know we moved to the village. We set up our own farm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So you. Um... You provided value-added food in addition to your uh, fresh vegetables. Okay. So in the process here, you became an expert on permaculture. And I'd like to explore that with you. How did that interest begin? Well, um, you know, when I started the CSA, um, I mean, right around that time, I had no business experience. And I had no farming experience. Uh, I only knew that I wanted to do something like this. And I had recently just come out of a college job and I had only grown tomatoes before that. So I was not an expert <laughs> in any of these things. And in, in some ways it was hard because I, I did used to be an expert on, on things I dealt with. So suddenly this demotion from you know, being an expert to not being an expert, <laughs> that, 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 that was something that, you know, you have to deal with uh, uh, on the side as, as you go along teaching yourself. But I learned, to, uh, I think the best part of my knowledge was learning hands-on at the CSA. I had hired uh, somebody who was a full-time farmer um, in his village, and he wanted to move closer to the city because his daughter was going to college. Um, and he wanted to be close to her. So their family, him and his wife, they moved to this land that we had leased and they would live there. I would commute um, to, to that farm and I would work with him. And I learned he's, he's my first guru uh, when it comes to farming. Uh, and I learned hands on from him. 
And around this time, we also started traveling around India, visiting various organic farms. Uh, we went to Vandana Shiva's farm in Dehradun and we volunteered there. Uh, we went to uh, Oroville, which is uh, in South India. It's an intentional community, uh, which, you know, um, there are many sustainable farmers there. So we went there and uh, we lived there and volunteered there for a while. Um, and we decided to take a permaculture course because, you know, from what we were exposed through in our visits to these farms, we felt that uh, we needed to understand um, design, nature-based design, first of all, um, because, you know, we were taking a huge risk. We knew that we were eventually going to turn into full-time farmers and we were going to put everything that we had uh, you know, um, it, 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 it was like a bet, uh, right? And uh, we, we uh, all, all our money, you know, um, we're giving up our jobs. So we wanted to be uh, prepared for what we were doing. Uh, and permaculture, uh, you know, for various reasons, appealed to us um, in the sense that uh, it, it seemed to be a very organized science, um, of design. Uh, and at the same time, it could be applied um, to any place, um, you know, depending on how we were applying it. And I think I'm, I'm also very grateful that we took this approach uh, when it came to, uh, you know, buying land, designing our farm, designing our business, um, designing our relationship, not designing, but really thinking about our relationships with people. Social permaculture, I think, has helped us out in, in so many ways. When we finally arrived in the village and we set up the farm, um, I think that, uh, you know, having that knowledge of permaculture meant that we could take this task head on uh, without a lot of fears. Uh, we were confident um, that, you know, we could design. And it is... It should also be said that, you know, between me, me and my husband, we had a set of skills. Um, so, you know, he has an engineering background um, and uh, he is, is good with numbers. Um, and I have a humanities background. Um, I, I don't know what I'm good with, but <laughs> so the, the, those two skill sets, I think, also mattered when we put permaculture to use. So uh, when we first bought the land, uh, we designed every inch of it before we spent a single penny. Give me an example of that. Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, you know, yeah. So there's, there's a corner of our land which uh, floods uh, during the monsoon. And um, it's somebody had started digging a pond over there and didn't finish. Um, and when we bought the land, uh, people around us, all our neighbors were saying that you should haul uh, some soil from elsewhere to fill it up because it floods. Um, and uh, we did not want to spend any money doing that because as permaculturalists, we immediately saw the value of that low land. And that is uh, what we did is we visited uh, a, a friend of ours who's a rice seed conservationist and we uh, went to him and we asked him if there were seeds that he could share with us that would grow on such low land. And he just laughed and said, I mean, give me something that is 50 feet deep and I have seeds for that. Um, this was only about, you know, five or six feet from the, uh, you know, the level of the farm, uh, five or six feet down. 
Uh, and he gave us uh, four different kinds of rice seeds. Um, and that's what we grow there. So we did not spend money hauling mud uh, from somewhere else trying to fill that up. Uh, we rather took advantage, as we say in permaculture, the problem is the solution. Um, that That's what we did. And we are so happy with the results because um, A, we have rice. B, we have been able to conserve all these, uh, you know, really rare native seeds, um, you know, for whoever wants to grow them, uh, whoever has similar land can grow these varieties of rice. Um, beautiful, beautiful, um, you know, rice seeds. Um, the plants are, they, they're almost like, um, I want to say about a foot taller than I am. Uh, I am five, four. Um, and when, you know, at their fullest growth, uh, they're, they're that tall. And uh, like our neighbors will stand and admire that beautiful rice. Uh, we have, um, you know, the after the rice is processed, we have the hay, uh, which we we can cycle back into the soil in various ways. Um, we have lovely mushroom going growing from that organic straw. So it's it's really that area became a resource um, to us instead of becoming a problem. That's great. So you're. Working with the contours of the land, you are matching a crop to that contour, and then you're getting multiple products from the crop. That's, yes. That's fascinating. Wow. What else have you done on your uh, – how big is your – oh, it's eight acres, did you say? No, no, it's two acres. You've been there. You've been there eight years. It's two acres. Okay. What else have you done on that lovely piece uh, of land? Well, the other thing that we did was managing the water um, on the farm, and uh, so there's uh, we have we are surrounded by two big ponds, um, and so we have we made sure that there was, um, you know, the, the all the water was redirected into the ponds. Um, and uh, ensuring that we don't have uh, erosion from the water flow. Um, and, um, the, well, I think in about a year and a half, uh, we could see that the water that would run when it was raining, and it, it rains really uh, a lot in our area, and it rains for three or four months continuously. That's our pattern. We, you know, we are dry throughout the year, and then it will rain for about three, three, three and a half months. Um, that our water will usually run clear. There's, there's no muddy water uh, because we manage the flows in such a way that there was no erosion from the land. Um, in our area, because we have such a hot and dry summer, ponds will usually dry up uh, in the height of summer. Ours never do uh, because a you know, the extra water that flows into the ponds uh, ensures that our water levels are always higher than our neighbor's ponds. Um, and B, because, you know, our, our ponds were constructed uh, with that in mind that, you know, there's, uh, we have managed the ponds in such ways that there's, you know, the water will remain even in the hottest and driest of summers, even during the hottest, driest summers. All right. So ma water management is a big part of permaculture. You know, I think it originally developed in Australia, didn't it? And um, yes. and with uh, droughts, with severe drought there. 
Yes. And the only problem that we don't have so far are fires. Uh, but, you know, permaculture has um, taught us to effectively control animals, wild animals, um, to manage water, to manage the quality of soil. Uh, so when we bought our land, uh, this was um, just bare, um, you know, chemically abused um, uh, rice paddies. Um, and we didn't have a single earthworm. When we dug into it, there were no earthworms. There was no life on it. Um, and then in a matter of, uh, you know, a year or so, it was teeming with earthworms. Uh, we have several different varieties of birds visiting, including water birds, because we have the ponds. Um, and uh, migratory birds uh, um, have even, they. I would say about three years ago, they started visiting um, and they will now raise their um, ducklings on the pond. So that's that's really, uh, you know, that's that's so inspiring um, just to see so many different varieties of birds visiting. Um, animals, not so much because, you know, the city is approaching fast and there, there, there are a lot of constructions. But we do have several different kinds of birds visiting, um, different kinds of snakes, um, different rep reptiles. Um, so, you know, little turtles and monitors and all different sorts of critters uh, on, on that little piece of land. So uh, we're very, very happy to see that revival. That sounds like paradise. Tell me how specifically you regenerated the soil. That's a huge, huge problem. Um, here in Iowa, we've worn out a lot of our soil uh, through conventional farming and, and people are trying to bring it back and they have their methods, but what did kind of method did you use? Primarily, um, I would say cycling back nutrients to the soil. Um, and the additional problem with the tropical climate is that we are in perpetual growth. Uh, in temperate climates here, um, if allowed, uh, you know, um, you know, if trees are allowed to shed, uh, the leaves are allowed to stay, uh, then fertility can be built back easily into the soil just by, you know, either not mowing or not re removing dry leaves. Uh, but in our climate, um, there is constant growth. There is no period of dormancy. So what happens is all our minerals, our nutrients, um, they're constantly cycled from the soil into um, plants, right? So we have, once again, according to permaculture principles, uh, we, uh, you know, we re recycle um, that growth uh, back into the soil as much as possible. Uh, we return crop residues to the soil as much as possible. Uh, we uh, we mow minimally. Uh, there's very little mowing except for like a single pathway. Uh, we don't mow at all. Um, and if we mow, then we don't remove um, those clippings or grass. So a lot of the, the, the growth is managed by um, cutting um, and then cycling back into the soil. Uh, if we weed, then our weeds will stay on the bed. They're never thrown outside of the system. So that's, you know, we keep 
recycling plant matter as as much as we can. We do not have animals, uh, grazing animals, uh, because, you know, A, the farm is too small, and B, when we first began uh, working here, it was just the two of us. We did not have permanent employees, and we did not have the means to pay salaries for employees who would help uh, look after, um, you know, cattle, for example. So we we deferred that, um, and we are surrounded by, uh, you know, a village that every household has cattle. So it's easy for us uh, to have access to, um, you know, animal waste uh, manure if you want to. Um, we have a neighbor who simply chucks it over our fence. So uh, it's it's easy for us to have access. And they, they will take the grass from us to feed their cows. Um, we buy the milk and we buy the manure. Um, so it's all good exchange. I think it's a bit of extra income for them um, to get paid for the manure, which you know they don't have complete use of because a lot of them don't even own land. So some of the, the cow manure, not the manure, but the cow dung, they will uh, turn into fuel for household use. Um, the rest, usually, if they want to sell it off, if it's possible to sell. So we buy that. Um, and, you know, whenever the cow has a calf, we have access to the milk. We, we, you know, we can buy milk from our farmers. So we know that it's once again establishing a good cycle of our uh, chemical-free grass going to the cows and the manure coming back to us. So that's, um, you know, an additional input to improve the soil. Uh, we compost, of course, and that is also, and we have ducks and some of the duck compost also goes back to the soil. So, and overall, um, ideally we would have uh, like to integrate more animals and in the future we might add maybe a couple of cows, uh, but uh, we wanted to stabilize ourselves in terms of, you know, labor and finances first before we made that investment into animal, uh, you know, animal keeping, uh, which is more labor intensive. Um, it, it can turn out to be very expensive at times. So we, we have, you know, we held back on that. Well, you're actually um, establishing your social capital through your method because you're, you know, having a good relationship with your neighbors and your economic cap capital because you have this symbiotic relationship where um, you're buying the milk and the manure and they're getting the grain. That's that's delightful. Um, what insights? You know, I'm I'm thinking about that situation how. Our farms here can be 4,000 acres, and when you have 4,000 acres, you don't have very many neighbors. And, yes. you know, our schools have closed because, you know, you don't need as many farmers with if you have 4,000 acres. Our towns have um, become down in the heel. What insights could you give Americans that, um, to help us create a healthier food system? I think, and I think um, my answer uh, was sort of, it's hidden in your question. Um, uh, you know, um, it is often a matter of downsizing. Uh, small is beautiful. Um, and if, if, you know, if somebody has 4,000 acres or 400 acres, um, it, it, it 
probably makes more sense in terms of permaculture uh, to turn the majority of it um, into what we call zone five or six, um, you know, the forest land, um, and then, um, you know, survive, farm, cultivate um, on, on the smallest part of it possible. Even on our two acres, uh, we started off by, you know, far planting crops to the very edge. And even though we put in an orchard, over the years, we have um, consciously, um, you know, started putting more um, trees and creating a zone five uh, because, um, you know, uh, we won't be able to do as much physical labor um, as we grow old. So this we call our retirement plan that, uh, you know, we will um, grow more perennials. Um, we have an astounding variety of fruits that will grow um, in India, especially. So to have more perennials, to have more timber trees, to have more medicinals, um, and to gradually cut back um, on, uh, you know, um, some of the crops that field crops that we were growing, um, is our strategy growing forward? Because yeah, we are going to have aches and pains. Uh, you know, yes, we are going to grow a bit weaker. Uh, there's, there's, like so much bending and so much uh, hard physical work. And if we are able to replace um, in our diet, um, you know, some grains or some, um, you know, beans or whatever it, it was that we were growing, um, you know, in an open field uh, with fruits, for example, uh, then that I mean, it, both in terms of our well-being and uh, in terms of our physical strength, it makes sense in the future. So, and there's, I mean, forests are, no matter what we humans create, forests are so much more productive than whatever we put in, right? We can create artificial forests, we can create orchards, but a forest will always, always be so much more productive. Um, so I think that um, my, you know, my humble opinion is to uh, make way for the forest and, um, you know, making sure that, you know, they're, they're, the invasive species do not take over, managing initially uh, in the first few years uh, what comes up, what springs up from the land um, and let it be, you know, let let the wildlife return, uh, let the butterflies return, um, you know, and I, I I'm I'm so happy to see that like uh, after the first year in our farm, um, the 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 natural cycles of pest pest control returned. Uh, so for the first year of growing rice, and at the time it was really just empty space around the rice fields, um, that we we had to do uh, a natural application so that we have a um, you know, plant that's that's called a custard apple. The fruit is delicious, um, and we out of those leaves we made a solution because leaves are toxic, uh, and we used it on the rice plants. But that was the only time that we had to use a, a you know a, an application for for the rice. From that time on, you know, uh, we we have spiders now. We have ladybugs now. We have so many different kinds of natural predators that come, uh, you know, owls um, for, you know, catching field mice. Um, and so I, I, we have 
a wide variety of lizards now. I never expected them. So, and they are our natural control. So to, to sort of give control back to nature, I think is the best strategy here. And we can only benefit from that. There's, there's no loss in, you know, relinquishing, uh, relinquishing some of our, uh, you know, our sense of power, our sense of control and uh, giving back to nature, uh, what she truly deserves. So I've been speaking to Aparajita Sengupta, who's found an ecological balance on her two acres in India, and she is writing a book about women farmers. As soon as you get that book finished, we'd like to have you back on the podcast here and uh, continue to talk about this. This is fascinating, and she's brought us much insight with her expertise in permaculture that we can use here in the United States. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary, for having me and uh, for listening to me so patiently. It's an honor. Potholders are a quintessential piece of American folk art. Don't forget to send us a picture of your favorite mitt or potholder for our latest contest. Win $100 in other prizes. Susan Strawn, our judge, PhD in textiles and clothing, currently residing on Bainbridge Island in Washington State, will put together a slideshow exhibit of the best entries to be displayed on our website. So go to www.agarts.org for the entry guidelines. The deadline, the summer solstice. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. The Cinepid Fund donation is a matching grant. We've raised half of the money, but have $2,000 more to go. Help us keep this diverse international initiative a part of Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button to bring us over the top. See you next time. Bruhaha. Buggy Land's the place to be. Free Martin Town's my favorite town in America.